I would be fantastic at an air guitar competition. I'm telling you what, I would kill it. Anybody know that song, Joel Walsh? Yeah, some of you do, some of you are godly. Um, here's the deal, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, open your Bibles if you would. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 this morning, and for those of you who are just catching up with us here, we've been studying this book of Ecclesiastes, and it's basically Solomon's journal. Now, you just kind of saw the context on the video that Solomon engaged in the grandest social experiments of all time, and he tried to fill himself and find contentment in everything under the Son, and Ecclesiastes is the journal that he wrote after the fact, and he talks about what he found contentment in, and more importantly, what he found lacked and did not bring contentment. And we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There's one in the seat back in front of you. You can look on with your neighbor. You have permission to do that. And uh, if not, the scripture, as always, is up here on the screen. So let's pick it up in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and look what Solomon says to us. He says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. How many of you already have a rock song in your head? Anybody? Congratulations, you're old. Um, Oh, come on. You, did you, are you surprised that the birds help you to memorize Scripture? That's, that's basically what we're talking about right now. The birds help you memorize Ecclesiastes 3. Keep going. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what's planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Stop there. Remember we talked about just a couple weeks ago that the book of Ecclesiastes is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. Remember this? So here's what Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. He is not prescribing to us the ways we ought to behave. He's not telling us what to do. He's not saying to us, look, there are some times you ought to heal people and sometimes you ought to kill people. <laughs> He's not saying there are some times that you ought to, you know, pursue peace and sometimes you ought to pursue war. Up to you, you do what you want to do. That's not what he's saying. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. Here's what Solomon is saying. Life happens. Life happens. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's difficult. You win some, you lose some. Sometimes you sow, sometimes you reap. Sometimes you tear, sometimes you repair. Sometimes people are born, sometimes people die. That's just how life is. Life just happens, doesn't it? And when life happens, good, bad, or otherwise, what's the question we ask? What's the million-dollar question? Why? Right? We ask why. Why, God, is this happening? Or why, universe, is this happening? Why, cosmos, is this happening? Why did my spouse get sick? Why did I get transferred from that job that I love? Why? And I find it's interesting that most of the time when people ask this million-dollar question, why, it's rarely when good stuff happens, right? Like when good stuff happens to you, nobody asks why. 
Like I remember uh, coming back from Phoenix one time. I was about to get on a flight, and they did the thing where they announce, hey, we're looking for people to step off this flight as a volunteer. Have you ever, has that ever happened to you? It's like, this flight is full, and if you'll step off the flight, we'll give you money. Well, like, I'm from Phoenix, and my parents live there, and family lives there. I've got a place to stay, and I didn't need to be back in Toronto that day. I needed to be in Ottawa the next day. So I was going to fly back to Toronto that day on, like, a Friday, I think it was, and then drive with Kevin Chan, who's a pastor here for a little while, to Ottawa the following day. So here's what I did. I went up to the counter, and I said to the gal, how much are you offering in terms of a voucher? And she says, if you step off this flight and you take a flight tomorrow, we will give you $600. I'm like, whoa, that's awesome. So I said, here's the deal. I'll take $600 and put me on the flight to Ottawa tomorrow because that will get me all the way to Ottawa, which is where I need to be, and it prevents me from having to drive with Kevin Chan, which is boring, like... Sorry, Kevin. He's watching on video after the fact. Sorry. I love you. You know I do. And, and I said, you know what else? You know what else you could do for me? You could put me on first class to Ottawa. And they said, sure. They handed me a $600 voucher and a ticket the next day all the way to Ottawa on first class. And I walked away from that situation not saying, why, God? Why? I don't deserve this. See, it's when bad things happen, when difficult stuff comes our way, we ask God, why? Why is this happening? And people respond all kinds of different ways because we don't always get the answer to that why question, do we? We don't always get the answers that we're searching for. And so we respond in a couple of different ways, and Solomon responded in those very same ways. In fact, here's what he said when he didn't have the answer to the why question. He went searching for it, and he never found it. It's up here on the screen. It's Ecclesiastes 1-2. He said, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Like, I never could get the answer to the why question. I never could get the answer to the million-dollar question. Why are some folks born? Why do some folks die? Why is there a time to sow and a time to read, a time to plant and a time to pluck up? It seems arbitrary. It seems meaningless. This word can be translated absurd. In the original language, it's chabel. It means vapor. It means we can't even, we can't grasp it. It's like chasing after soap bubbles. Like, I can never get the answers that I'm searching for. And interestingly enough, this conclusion was not unique to Solomon. It wasn't exclusive to Solomon. There's a philosophy called absurdism. Absurdism. Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre, I know I'm not pronouncing those well. French speakers, I get that. I'm from U.S., and so just give me a little bit of grace here. But those particular philosophers espoused this philosophy of, of, of absurdism. Life is meaningless. You can't find meaning. It's just comical. It's just a joke. And, and there's nothing you can actually grab onto in terms of that question. Why? In fact, a German philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche explained it this way. He talks about a madman in the marketplace with a lantern in his hand in early morning hours crying out, I seek God, I seek God. And he's walking around a marketplace, a fictional story, obviously. He's walking around a marketplace with a lantern in his hand. And those who are listening to him didn't believe in God, so they mocked him, and they uh, made fun of him, and they said, what, like, did God take a vacay? Like, where are you, did he immigrate somewhere? Is he on a boat? Like, did, did you lose him? Like, you lose your keys? And you're saying, I seek God. And the madman answers this way. He says, whither is God, he cried. I shall tell you, we have killed him, you and I, all of us his murderers. But how have we done this? 
How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? Now listen to the absurdism. Everything is meaningless. Whither is it moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night and more night coming on all the while? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of gravediggers who are burying God? And this might be familiar to you. God is dead. And we have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? See, his aim here is to explain the implications of a godless existence. A godless existence leads you to the conclusion that all is absurd. Nothing has meaning. In his words, we are plunging continually through an infinite nothing with no left, right, up, or down, left. And again, Solomon reached the same conclusion. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. And I want you to watch how Solomon got there. When life happened and he asked that question why, here's what happened. Here's how he got to that conclusion, that desperately sad conclusion. Look what Solomon writes. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. But there's a problem with Solomon's statement here. And the problem is this. If you know anything about Solomon, Solomon had an intimate conversation with God when he was younger, before he wrote Ecclesiastes. And God said to Solomon, you can have anything you want. What do you want? Anything you want. That's how God talks. Anything you want. He said to Solomon, what do you want? And Solomon said, I want what? Wisdom. So when Solomon says, I am seeking out by wisdom, he's already got wisdom. He's just seeking out the answer to this question, why? And here's his conclusion. It's an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. It's absurd. It's comical. There's no answer to this question, why? Keep going. Solomon says this. One more slide, please. Solomon says this. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. All is, same word as, meaningless. All is absurd. It's a striving after the wind. See, Solomon made the, absu- made the assumption that he was big enough, that he was smart enough, that he was eternal enough to be able to acquire all the answers that he sought. I am smart enough to get this. I might be even as smart as God. And so when I seek wisdom and pursue wisdom, Solomon was pursuing wisdom for wisdom's sake. He wasn't pursuing God. He was pursuing, I I, want to understand everything. I want to be as smart as God. And and you're going, really? Like, this this is who we are at our core? Yes, it's who we are at our core. You know how I know that? Because it starts in Genesis 3. Look what happens. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God didn't really say that, but she just plugs that in there just for kicks and giggles. Lest you die, because she wasn't listening well, by the way. Keep going. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one what? Wise. She took of the fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now watch. You might be thinking to yourself, this preacher is harping on wisdom this morning. Like, I thought wisdom was a good thing. Wisdom is a good thing. But the error that original woman makes here is she says that I want to be what? Like God. I'm big enough. I'm smart enough to understand all that is. And if I don't understand it, it must be that it isn't. If I don't get it, it's not true. So I am going to understand everything, and I'm going to partake of this fruit so that I can understand all things. And it led her to say, well, meaningless. An absurd existence out of the garden. Same with Solomon. He pursued wisdom for wisdom's sake. He said, I can be smarter than God. See, when we desire to elevate ourselves to a God-like status when it comes to understanding life, let me say that one more time. When we desire to elevate ourselves to a God-like status when it comes to understanding life, when we make the assumption that we can find, acquire, and even deal with all the answers to that big life question, why, when we make that assumption, it leaves us empty because we may not get the answer to that question why and we conclude that life is absurd well it's just meaningless the second option that Solomon pursued when it comes to answering this life question why is to just totally medicate himself and pursue excess so that he would just forget that that there was a that life was happening at all that's called hedonism by the way it's a pursuit of excess. The, the core tenet of hedonism is let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Maximum net pleasure. I want to maximize pleasure. I want to minimize pain. Solomon would say, this, say it this way in Ecclesiastes 2.10. He would say, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, or whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. If I wanted it, I took it. This is the... This is the manner of Hollywood, typically. This is the manner of rock and roll. This is Hunter S. Thompson and, you know, whatever else. If I just pursue excess, if I always just get a little bit more, it will medicate me. And, and if I maximize my pleasure and minimize my pain, I'll forget that I have to answer this question, why, at all. But it's interesting to me that the conclusion of absurdism that Solomon reached at one point in life and the conclusion of hedonism that Solomon reached at one point in life before he smartened up and got older and realized what was really happening, th those two uh, philosophies, absurdism and hedonism, share the same core tenet, and that's this, that nothing truly matters. N nothing matters. It's all meaningless. It's all absurd. 
So let's just kind of medicate ourselves and party into oblivion and indulge in excess so we can deal with the absurdity of life. Here's what Solomon does. He comes along in Ecclesiastes 3, and he begins with verse 1 through 8. He says, life happens. You ask this question, why? And I've dealt with it with absurdism, and I've dealt with it with hedonism, and, I've, and both of them have been found wanting. So Solomon says, what I want to share with you is two core truths about who God is and two core truths about who you are. That might be a little bit difficult to hear. But if we can wrap our minds around these truths, if we can understand them at the core of who we are, it will help us not necessarily answer the question of why when life happens, but to have tools to deal with and respond to that question of why. So here are the two core truths about who you are and the two core truths about who God is. Solomon begins in, in verse 9. We stopped in verse 8. Here's what Solomon says in verse 9. He says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Watch two things that Solomon says here. One, what gain has the worker from his toil? This is a rhetorical question. He's saying, no matter how hard you work, you can't change it. Life's going to happen. So that, that's a tough truth, isn't it? There might be some stuff that life deals you. There might be some cards that you get dealt that you cannot control. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to pluck up, a time to plant. Like, it just happens. And you might not be able to control it. You might not be able to gain anything by your toiling. Now, that's tough. Here's the second thing he says. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So not only you might not be able to affect it, but you might not be able to understand it. Eugene Peterson translates this passage this way, and I think it's fantastic. Here's what he says. He says, but in the end, does it really make a difference what anyone does? I mean, this is like, we talked about this last week. Solomon's like the worst dinner guest ever, right? Like, does it really make a difference what anyone does? Thank you, Solomon. Get out. Um, I've had a good look at what God has given us to do. Busy work, mostly. True, God's made everything beautiful and in its time, but he's left us in the dark so that we can never know what God is up to, whether he's coming or going. So here's what Solomon's saying in Ecclesiastes 3, 9 through 12. He's saying that you are limited. You're limited. You're limited in what you can control. You're limited in your influence. How many of you have ever tried to control something that you could not control? Sickness, death and dying, work. It's outside of your control sometimes. And we try to manage consequences, don't we? <laughs> we try to manage people. And Solomon comes along and he says, you have limited influence. You have limited perspective. You have a limited ability to answer that question, why you our, are limited. Let's, let's talk about who God is, and, and, and so I want to get there this way. Have you ever noticed that your perspective 
grows the further away you are from a situation. You ever notice that? Like, I'm, I remember going through a couple of breakups, and I know it's hard to believe that, that girls have dumped me, but um, it has happened. And I remember going through those, like, in life, and I'm, you know, in the moment, I'm like, man, this is horrible. This is the worst. Like, I'm going to go eat a worm. This is bad. And then the further I get from that situation, the more I see it in its broader perspective. Has that ever happened to you? Anybody ever go through something difficult, and you look back, and you go, yeah, you know what? Actually, that makes a little more sense now. Has that ever happened to you? Okay, good. Fantastic, fantastic. That's just what happens. Our perspective grows with time and space. The further we are away in time, the further we are away in space, our perspective gets wider. We see it for what it is. We see it in context. We see it in kind of a grander life plan. I told you about Hawaii last week about Amy quitting rowing when we were on a kayak, which I'm still angry about, but that's beside the point. I want to tell you a story about the same trip. So we were snorkeling on the Nepali coast, which is on the northeast side of the island of Kauai, and this is years ago. And there was a a snorkeling instructor with us, the guy that's doing the tour, and basically they take a bunch of tourists out, and they drop them in the water, and they watch them get sunburnt for a couple hours. It sounds like a great deal to me. But this guy grew up on the island of Kauai. He was born there. He lived there his whole life. And all he did was scuba dive. Like, that was his whole life. He was in the water all the time. So I love asking this question to professionals. Like, I love asking this question. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen? Do that in a cab sometime. You'll get a crazy answer. Do that in an Uber. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen in your Uber? It's probably going to be PG-13, by the way. I'll just warn you. So I asked this guy. I asked this snorkeling instructor, this guy who's conducting the tour. I said, what is the craziest thing you have ever seen out here in this water? And he said, that's an easy one. He said, one time we were doing a night dive. And I thought, well, that's your first problem right there. Like, that is stupid to be out here in the middle of the dark when nobody can't see anything, right? And he said, yeah, it wasn't a good idea, but we were going out to this kind of cliff in the water, this this wall that that had become like a a reef where a bunch of fish and different stuff lived, and it was, you know, 1 o'clock in the morning or whatever, and it was pitch black, and we were all uh, scuba diving with lights on. And he said, I was swimming, and I was looking down at the bottom of the water, and I looked up. And almost within or the bottom of the seafloor, and he said, almost when within arm's length of me was the wall. And I thought, man, we haven't been swimming for that long. Like, I thought the wall was much further out. He's like, what? I, I can't believe we're to the wall already. But then, just in front of him, he sees the wall start to move. And he thinks to himself, self, walls don't typically move. So he begins to back up, and as he backs up in space, he begins to get a much broader perspective, doesn't he? And he sees that what he thought was a wall is, in his estimation, a 30-foot tiger shark. Now, I looked it up online. The biggest tiger shark that's ever been captured was 25 foot long and 7,000 pounds. So this guy, he's just estimating how big he thinks this is. And and it's big enough for him to think when he was close to it, it was a wall. Totally benign. This is what we've been looking for. But then when you get a broader perspective, you think, oh, that's a lot more dangerous than I thought. And he subsequently, you know, 
peed his pants and ran back in. No, no, no. He just said, he said, I was just done at that point, right? I was done. I got out of the water and it was over. See, sometimes as we back up in time and space, sometimes as we get a broader perspective, sometimes when we're further away from situations and consequences and context, when we see it in the grander scheme of things, we go, oh, yeah, that makes a little more sense. I see that happen with Kaya all the time. She's like, I want to eat 100 gummy bears for dinner. I'm like, babe, that is not going to happen, right? Because I'm further removed in time and space. I'm older than you, and I know that if you eat 100 gummy bears for dinner, it's going to be bad for you. And she thinks it's totally fine, but it's going to be bad for you. Now, Now, here's what happens with God. Look up here on the screen. Look what Solomon says about God. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever, Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So here's what Solomon is saying to us. God already has acquired. He already possesses what we desire. That, the answer to that why question, God already has it. And whatever he does endures forever. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. He's saying that God sees everything at one time, past, present, and future. He is totally removed in terms of time and space. He sits on top of eternity and he sees it all in one instant. While you see it up close and you're just staring at the trees, God sees the whole forest. And he knows the answer to that question, why? Look at, what the, look at what God says about himself in Isaiah 46. It's up here on the screen. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. This is not a disparaging remark. It's a neutral statement of fact. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Now watch what he does. Declaring the end from the beginning. I see it all. I sit above eternity. I sit above and outside of time and space, and I see it all together. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my, say that word with me, purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, and the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God is saying, I am in control, and check it out, I am unlimited. I'm unlimited. You might be limited in your ability to answer that question, why? You might be limited in your influence. You might be limited in your perspective. But God says, not me. Not me. I know the past and the present and the future. I know the answer to that question, why? And when life happens, I am in control, and I'm working it out for your good and my glory. Now, the fact that God has an unlimited perspective and he sits above eternity and he declares the beginning from the end might be discouraging if we didn't have a good, good father, right? So watch, watch what else Solomon says about God. He says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, that's pretty cool. See, when we don't know the answer to that question, why, God is working it out. When we see the backside of the tapestry and we're going, this is horrible and ugly and difficult, 
God sees the other side because he's on the other side of glory, the other side of eternity, the other side of time and space. His perspective is broad and wide, and he knows that he is working it out, and he will make it beautiful in its time. This promise is woven throughout the entirety of Scripture. Because God is eternal, because he has a broad perspective, because he sees it all and knows it all and controls it all because he is sovereign over all and he's good, we can trust that he's working it out and he will make it beautiful beautiful in its time. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. He says this, uh, and we know that for those who love God, how many things, say this with me, all things, say it again, all things, one more time, work together for what? For those who are called according to his purpose. And why? Why? Because for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be formed to conform to the image of his son. Now, don't get caught up, foreknew, predestined, called, and the Arminians and the Calvinists are going to fight each other afterwards. And it's going to be great, okay? That's beside the point. Don't get caught up here. What Paul is saying is because God's perspective is eternal, because he's working it out for his purpose, and what's his purpose? Your good and his glory. Because he's in control, you don't always have to answer that question, why? And you don't have to come to the conclusion that life is meaningless, life's just absurd. We'll just waddle through this thing until it's all over. God's going, check it out. I sit above all things. I'm a long way back from that tiger shark, buddy. And I see the whole ocean, and I'm working it out for your good and my glory. Now, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. The second way that Solomon tried to solve this was with hedonism. Hedonism. It's a pursuit of excess. And hedonism is not just a pursuit of excess of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, although Solomon did that too. It's a pursuit of toil. It's a pursuit of work. It's a pursuit of success. It's a pursuit of wisdom for wisdom's sake. It's a pursuit of knowledge and being smart. It's it's just a pursuit of anything to excess. It's hedonism. I'm going to maximize my pleasure and minimize my pain. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Hedonism is based in this core value. I need just a little bit more. I need just a little more. You know, I've got enough money, but I need just a little more. I've got enough fame, but I need just a little more. I've got enough power, but I need just a little more. You know, it's interesting. Studies show that, that if you ask people, no matter how much they make a year, if you ask them how much they would really like to make, that everybody answers the same way, by and large. The vast majority of people answer the exact same way. Do you know what they say? Just a little more. Just a little more. 10 to 15% more. Just a little more. The guy that makes $10,000 a year and the guy that makes $10 million a year, they answer the exact same way. I just want a little more. Just a little more. So Solomon comes along and he says, I got just a little more thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And rivers ran into the sea and the sea was never full. I got just a little more and just a little more and just a little more and it left me wanting every time. He says to you, a little more will never be enough. A little more will never be enough. And if we can wrap our heads around this, that a little more will never be enough, here's what happens. It frees us from pursuing just a little more, doesn't it? Like, if, if I know it's never going to be enough, like, I don't have to keep going after excess. I don't have to keep going after that next thing. I don't have to keep pursuing uh, this, the, the next deal and just a little more of this, just a little more of that. It frees me from having to do that. 
And look what Solomon says. Once you're freed of pursuing just a little more, here's what happens. He says, I perceived, I observed, I concluded there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I love this conclusion of Solomon's. He's saying, when I finally realized that a little more will never be enough, because I got a little more a thousand times over and I pursued excess, got everything I ever wanted and I found it wanting, there was a moment when I decided a little more will never be enough. And what it enabled me to do was find joy and contentment in the little things. Rather than pursuing more things, just a little more, I could find joy and contentment in the little things. He says, I found joy in God. I found contentment in God. I found wholeness in God. And what that empowered me to do was to be free of this hedonistic pursuit of just a little more. And then just to find joy in the little things, in the little moments in life. Be joyful. Do good. Eat. Drink. Enjoy my work. And know, now check this out, and I love that Solomon says this, these are God's gifts to man. These are gifts from God. I love it because most people think, if you ask them, most people think that Christianity is squashing their vibe, right? It's like all the rules and all the regulations, Christianity is kind of a buzzkill. Solomon comes along and he says, you know what? Every buzz you could ever think of, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, I pursued it. And it took the edge off of my ability. It, 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 it took my taste buds away. It curbed my appetite for it. It limited my ability to enjoy the little things because I was always in relentless pursuit of just a little more, just a little more, just a little more. So here's the deal. When we ask the why question, life happens and we ask the why question, and absurdism is found wanting and hedonism is found work, wanting. What is it that God invites us to? Here it is. It's just trust. It's trust. And I want you to know, friends, that, that trusting God is not an evaluation process of his plan to see if you like it or not. You ever do that with God? You ever pray, God, what is your plan for my life? then I am going to see how it feels for me and I'll let you know whether or not I'm going to do it. You ever do that before? I've done that before. And God's going, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. I sit above eternity. I will accomplish my purpose. purpose. I will make things beautiful in their time. You might, not have, you might not always get the why question answered, so you're going to have to trust my wisdom. You're going to have to trust my wisdom. Not ask for my wisdom and evaluate it to see if you like it or not. But trust that I'm in control. And number two, you're going to have to trust my joy. Trust my joy. Here's what this means. It means that God is the most joyful being in the universe. And he has unending, everlasting joy in the palm of his hand available for you. And Solomon went searching for joy and contentment in all things under the sun. And God invites us to experience joy in him. And that will empower us and free us up to experience joy in the little things in life. And be able to eat, drink, and toil and have relationships and go, wow, what great gifts God has given me. 
when I used to have a, a Facebook account, which I don't anymore because I think Facebook is stupid, um, but that's just my opinion. You can think whatever you want, but I'm right. Um, so when I used to have a Facebook account, it said under religious views, uh, I, you know, you could type whatever you want, and I wrote Christian hedonist. Christian hedonist. It's a, it's a term coined by John Piper, used by Matt Chandler. Here's what it means, that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. When we find unending, everlasting joy in him, as the Westminster Confession of Faith would say, the chief end of man, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I can trust that God has unending joy for me. God has good things for me. I can trust his joy and that I don't need to go searching for it elsewhere. I've shared this with you before, but over the last couple of years, life uh, has kind of happened to me and Amy when it comes to this adoption thing that we've done. And I've shared this with you before, but this is just kind of what God has taught me from this passage in Ecclesiastes as I've been studying, this, studying it this week. When we adopted Kaya, she just turned two in August, uh, and we're potty training right now. I don't need to tell you those stories. It's just a mess. Uh, but, but when we were adopting her, we hit a lot of hurdles along the way. You know, we had to redo our home study, and we had to redo our FBI fingerprints. And in the midst of that adoption, my, my brother engaged in an adoption process, my brother and his wife, and it took them seven weeks. And months are turning into years as we go through this adoption process. And we ask the question all along the way, why, God? Why? Why did we present to that birth mom? And she said, no. Why is it taking so long? Why do we have to redo this? Why, 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 why? And then, and then what happened? We adopted Kaya. And we said, oh, that's why. And I felt a relief. I felt something inside of me go, oh, yeah, and a light bulb turned on. I got the answer I was looking for. Now watch this. Here's, here's, where, here's where the meat hits the grinder. <laughs> this summer... We attempted to adopt uh, Kaya's full biological sibling. We planned for it for seven months. The birth mom reached out to us and asked us to adopt Kaya's full biological sibling. We got a nursery ready. We got a car seat ready. We put everything in place. And then the last day when it was time for us to take the baby home after spending days in the hospital with them and nights feeding the baby and changing diapers and the whole thing, picking out a name, everything, about an hour before the birth mom was going to get discharged, she changed her mind. And we came back here with no baby. And, and look, I'm, I will never have an answer to that question, why? And I just want, I want to just be absolutely clear. We supported that birth mom's decision. We love her very, very much. We talked to her. But it was hard, you know what I mean? It was difficult. And we asked that question, why, God? And, and I could just hear him whisper to me in this passage this morning. And in this passage, as I studied it this week, I stand above eternity I will make all things beautiful in their time. You may never know why. You may never get that answer. We're not going to get that baby. We'd like to, you know, adopt another baby, but it's not going to replace that one. God goes, I know that you struggle, but I am working things out for your good and my glory. So you've got to trust my wisdom and you've got to trust that I have joy for you and when you find contentment in me, you'll be able to find contentment and joy in the little things in life. Would you pray with me?
Men and women of God, this may be tough to hear, but trust is a choice. It's an act of your will to trust. Yes, people can earn trust. Yes, people can betray your trust. Yes, I get that, but this is not an emotional thing. This is a choice to trust God, and he has never betrayed your trust. He's never left you or forsaken you. He's never let you down. He's working things out for your good and for his glory, and sometimes you don't get answers to those questions, and sometimes life happens, and sometimes difficult stuff happens, and you may be thinking, Luke, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I'm going through. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. But God does. And don't think that I haven't thought about all this this morning, everything that you might be going through in terms of death and dying and financial crisis and health and marriage and relationships and everything that life might be throwing at you that Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. Everything that might be happening in your life. I've tried to think of as many things as I can. I don't get them all, but God does. And he's making those things beautiful in their time. He's putting them all together like ingredients in a delicious meal. And he's going to bake it and put it on the table and you're going to go, wow, I just did not see that coming. But in the meantime, we have to trust his wisdom and trust his joy and make a choice to do that. I've asked the band to kind of conclude uh, with a song that we sang earlier because I think it's just so appropriate for this morning. I have decided to follow Jesus. I've made a choice to trust him because he is enough for me. Let's stand together and sing in response.